Hi, folks. Rico here. I uh, just wanted to let you know that although you are about to hear an encore broadcast of one of our favorite classic DPD episodes ever featuring the legend Mel Brooks, we do have some new episodes coming up in ensuing weeks. Right after Thanksgiving, you will hear our annual All Food episode. And after that, you are going to hear the recording of our live show in Seattle, Washington, that we are actually taping this week. So stay subscribed. Look forward to those episodes. And meanwhile, here's your icebreaker. What does Geronimo say when he jumps off a cliff? Me! I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I am Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner parties. You just got a joke from actor and writer Greta Gerwig that'll help break the ice. She wrote and directed the acclaimed indie film Lady Bird. We'll hear more from her later. Plus, Mel Brooks provides etiquette tips like how to deal with noisy neighbors. Just write, if you make noise, we will kill you. See, it's just that simple. (laughs) And if this all sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we aired back in 2014. So cast your mind back to the International Year of Crystallography. Really? It really was. When, as at any party, we started with small talk. All week, you've been hearing these headlines. Joan Rivers, the famous comedian, has passed away. A federal jury has convicted former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell and his wife Maureen of corruption. NFL kickoff is upon us. Now for a story you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is senior editor at Fast Company magazine. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week? I'm going to be talking about a study um, about why you can't smell the smell of your own house. I can't smell the smell of my own house? Yes. I didn't realize that. Well, you know how when you walk in somebody else's house and you're conscious like, oh, this smells like Febreze or this smells like cooking, you walk into your house and it's just kind of neutral. Oh, that's true. Because my house is clean and perfect (laughs) and I'm not gross like other people. Yeah, that's 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 clearly not the case. So what's going on here, Rayhan? According to New York Magazine, it's a phenomenon called nose blindness. Wow. Um, I wish I experienced that phenomenon more often. <laughs> it would be more useful yeah. outside of your house. I wish I had nose blindness in the subway, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, a subway is not a familiar environment. Apparently, we're set up to be more finely attuned to change. So as soon as something changes in your house, let's say a new air freshener or a rotting corpse of an animal, you're going to notice that, but not the resting state of your house. But what's the reason for that, I wonder? Like, is there an evolutionary reason why we're more attuned to changes in scent? Well, I think it's a survival thing. Um, You know, you had to be able to tell before we had, you know, like fancy thermometers, whether or not food was safe to eat, for instance. So um, we're... are triggered by the smell of rotting food. So it's about threat, basically. Like if, if a smell is new to you or if it changes suddenly, then it might be threatening and you notice it. But if you're not threatened by it, then you stop noticing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So is Febreze dangerous by eliminating all these, the scent of these threats? We're actually making ourselves vulnerable. Good point. It's like not wearing a seatbelt. On your nose. Yeah. I mean, there's probably going to be some regulations around Febreze soon. I think it's a priority. Finally. All right. Rehan Harmansi, thanks for the small talk. Thanks so much, you guys. And now let's inhale some cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is the mighty Amazon flowing with booze. Ooh, there goes the rainforest. 
Let us start with the history. This week back in 1878, the first of a new breed of American worker was hired. Our friend Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Almost as soon as there were telephones, there were telephone operators. And they did more than plug wires into switchboards. See, when the first phone companies launched in New England, phone lines were noisy. Operators not only had to quickly connect callers, they were expected to monitor the calls and help out if the callers couldn't understand each other. The problem? The first operators were teenage boys who developed a rep for being, well, kind of jerks. They were impatient. They cursed. The solution seemed obvious. Replace them with girls. On September 1st, 1878, Boston's telephone dispatch company hired the first female operator, Emma Nutt. She liked to joke she was glad her first name wasn't Ima. In addition to that sense of humor, Emma also had a pleasant voice. And unlike the male delinquents who preceded her, Emma and her fellow women didn't have many other career options, so they put up with a lot more hassle. Soon, America's switchboards were all run by female operators. It wasn't a cakewalk. Operators worked 12-hour shifts, for which they earned a measly 10 or so bucks per month. And as an early operator named Marie McGrath told PBS, it was a less-than-nurturing work environment. Very, very strict at the board. No talking, no, don't dare look around. If you moved your head, you'd have five supervisors at your position. You could only use certain phrases, number please and thank you. The customer could say anything they wanted to you and you would say thank you. You're a stinker, thank you. Still, Emma Nutt seemed to make peace with her gig. She worked as an operator for over 30 years and was said to have memorized the entire New England phone book. A century later, a telecom company started offering what was basically an automated virtual phone operator for offices. They named the system Emma. So that was the history lesson. Now for a drink to go along with it. I am joined by Naomi Levy. She is a bar manager at Eastern Standard in Boston, Massachusetts, the city that Emma Nutt worked on the switchboard. Uh, Naomi, what cocktail did this story inspire you to make? This story inspired me to make a drink that I am naming the switchboard. There is okay. no more appropriate name. <laughs> um, and uh, for this cocktail, uh, what I wanted to do was kind of switch up a cocktail that some of us may know about, the Marconi Wireless, which is actually named for another pioneer in early communication. Of all the people to get their own drink. You know, you would think like Frank Sinatra would have a drink, right. more, but Marconi. <laughs> Right. And um, I believe it was actually uh, invented at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. Um, It was believed that he stayed there during one of the times that he got an award, and this was his drink of choice, essentially an Applejack Manhattan. Interesting. Yeah. Now, we are going to switch it up for the Mm -hmm. switchboard. We're switching it from essentially a Manhattan variant to a Negroni variant. Wait, wait, why didn't they get a Marconi Negroni? I mean, that's really... What they should have given I don't know. Right, he, should, he was Italian, too. That would make sense. Yeah, exactly. The Campari, the rhyme, it was just right there. It really was. You know what? That's okay. going to be the next drink I come up with. All, All right. right. So the switchboard is an ounce and a half of Laird's bonded Applejack. That's going to be the 100-proof stuff. Okay. With three quarters of an ounce of Cookie Americano, which is our vermouth. 
as well as three quarters of an ounce of Aperol being our bitter orange in there. Give that a nice stir, and we're serving that uh, right over the rock. And wait for it to connect to your brain. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Sip slowly. Enjoy it. It's definitely a nice kind of little bit more of a feminine drink versus the Marconi Wireless. We're trying to we're trying to make it something that Emma would would hopefully enjoy after a long long day at the switchboard. You want to make something that Emma would be nuts about. Right. <laughs> Naomi Levy of the bar Eastern Standard in Boston, Mass. It's a tasty-sounding drink. Indeed. But folks, if you don't happen to have Applejack lying around, what? Rico and I include plenty of simple classic cocktail recipes in our forthcoming book. Yes. It's called Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. And it's a funny yet useful guide to party hosting, including a list of the mere nine bottles of booze you need to make a bevy of beverages. Plus a flowchart to help you decide when to kick everyone out. You can pre-order it now wherever books are sold or head to brunchishell.com. And now, time to eavesdrop. Writer, actor, and returning DPD guest Greta Gerwig starred in the indie film hits Greenberg, Damsels in Distress, and Frances Ha, and she wrote and directed the acclaimed new flick Lady Bird in theaters now. Today, we overhear her contribution to a literary collection to which she lent a story and the shirt off her back. I'm Greta Gerwig, and I'm going to read a story I told to Emily Spivak, who made this book called Worn Stories which is a, a piece of clothing that means something to you that you have, have a story about or a feeling about, and uh, this one is mine. Twelve years ago, I was working as a stage manager at a theater company in Vermont for the summer. I was the worst stage manager of all time. Around this time... I figured out that I could fall in love with people and that I could be in love. I was already in love with one person and I started falling in love with lots of people. I felt very guilty about it, but it also felt like an appropriate response to figuring out you can be in love. I was in love with love. In high school, I would have these horrible crushes on people, but they were never reciprocated or the people were gay. Then in college, I had the experience of looking into someone's eyes and saying, I love you, and he said, I love you, back. So I had this crush or love for this actor at the theater in Vermont. His name was David, and I thought he was so beautiful. He had this very soft button-down shirt. When I hugged him, and I would always invent reasons to do so, I would touch his shirt. It was very chaste. Nothing ever happened. I was in love with him, but he was 26 years old, and I was 18, and when you're 18, 26 seems really old. David left that summer before I did. We took him to the bus station, and I cried because I was 18 and dramatic. I watched him go, and I felt bereft. My friends and I returned to the falling-apart cabin in the woods that had been our home that summer. I went to the room where I had a bunk bed. 
Hanging on my bunk was that button-down shirt. His shirt. Tucked inside the shirt pocket was a note. He told me I was beautiful and a creature of light. Doesn't that just kill you? Can you imagine an 18-year-old girl coming back from the bus station to her room and seeing that the guy she loved had left his shirt for her? He knew. He just knew it. And it was beautiful. I always write while I'm wearing this shirt because it makes me feel like I have a secret. When you write, it's good to have a secret because, in a way, you do. You have to nurture the secret until other people know about it. Actor and writer Greta Gerwig reading her contribution to the book Worn Stories, a collection of, quote, sartorial memoirs. A sequel to that collection, Worn in New York, is out now. Enrico, I was thinking my story would be about this little red blazer I had when I was 10. And I called it my tuxedo. (laughs) And I'd be allowed to wear it only when we went out to dinner where I would drink Sprite martinis. Oh, you were a a young... Wait, isn't a Sprite martini just a Sprite? If it's made correctly. All right. Yeah, dry Sprite martini. No vermouth in that. It's important. All right, coming up, folks, comedy legend Mel Brooks. And he wants everyone's full attention. Stick this white handkerchief in your mouth. That's an order when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I am Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired way back in 2014. Trust us, you want to hear this one again. In a few minutes, A.C. Newman, frontman of the band New Pornographers, analyzes the lyrical genius of the Doobie Brothers. There's no real lyrical hook to remember, except for the line, what a fool believes. You'll never hear that tune the same way again. But first, let's hear from our guest of honor, Mr. Mel Brooks. Brendan introduced him like this. He began his career in stand-up and as a writer for Sid Caesar's groundbreaking TV comedy series, Your Show of Shows. He went on to form a duo with one of the show's writers, Carl Reiner, and scored a massive hit with their routine, The 2,000-Year-Old Man. Mm. And then Mel went on to write and direct what are considered some of the funniest movies ever, including The Producers, Blazing Saddles, and Young Frankenstein. This year is the 40th anniversary of that parody of classic monster movies, and a new edition is being released on Blu-ray on September 9th, the day after he sticks his hands and feet in wet cement in front of Hollywood's famed Chinese theater. And Mel, it's an honor to have you. Why, look, you know, Brendan. Yes. You, you've covered it. I don't have to talk. That's it. <laughs> you've, you've said Great. All right. You've said everything I was going to say. It's been nice having you. And even you could say bigger and better things about me, but that's okay. Well, oh. let me let me help you a little bit. <laughs> okay. You say. I can't effing believe who I am talking to. That's true, this actually. This guy is an effing legend. When I, when I left the house today, a neighbor said to me, isn't that guy dead? And I said, well, I'm, I don't know, I hope not. I'm going to talk to him in 10 minutes. But you bring anyway, up a good point. You, you are a legend. R2-D2 is a fictional character. He has his feet in the cement in the Chinese theater, and you don't? Well, I've ha- I'm really a little worried about it. I heard that Jeanette McDonald, who she was a very famous opera singer. Yes. She was in a great movie with Clark Abel called San Francisco. Right. Yeah. And uh, But I heard when she got her hands and feet in the cement, she actually got stuck. <laughs> and they had to... Uh, <laughs> 
I mean, they had to cut her shoes away to get her feet out. Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. And so, yeah, so I'm, I'm wearing my cheapest shoes in case they have to yeah. be cut away. Yeah, or just coat them with butter uh-huh. so that it, they just slide out real easy after you're done. Okay, well, I don't know. Olive oil may be cheap. All right. But I might, I'll coat them with something. <laughs> That's a good idea. So we want to play a clip from Young Frankenstein, which you great, co-wrote great. with your star, Gene Wilder. Hey, everybody, come in here. They're going to play a clip from Young Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> but there's too much good stuff to choose from. Uh-huh. So we'd like you to pick what's your favorite, ideally non-visual, gag in the movie. Uh, you know, one of, one, of, one of my favorites has a great pause in it. It's Marty Feldman at the dinner table. It starts actually with Dr. Frankenstein yeah. saying, yes. reputation, reputation. He's so unhappy because his experiment didn't work. The, mo- the monster did not come to life. Yeah, Frankenstein yeah. monster. And then uh, Marty Feldman, who plays Igor, says... You know, I'll never forget my old dad when these things would happen to him, the things he'd say to me. And then he didn't talk. <laughs> you know, so we all waited. I don't know whether Marty Feldman, as I go, was using the right tempo, yeah. taking his time, or simply forgot what he had to say next. <laughs> we waited two minutes. And then Gene said, what did he say? What did he say? Marty says something like... Uh, what the hell are you doing in the bathroom day and night? Why don't you get out of there and give someone else a chance? <laughs> it's the craziest scene. It was very difficult. I got to tell you guys a secret. Yeah. Okay. The minute we started shooting, the crew, you know, the, the grips and uh, the sound people and the camera people, you know, they break up and you could hear them laughing, you know, through, I mean, they try to muffle it through their fingers. So the first day I sent someone out, I sent the assistant director out, and I literally, this is all true, and mm. I, I said, go to a department store and buy a 1,000 handkerchiefs. So he went out and he bought a 1,000 white handkerchiefs. And I said to the crew, every time you got an urge to break up, to laugh, stick this white handkerchief in your mouth. <laughs> and every once in a while when I knew things were funny, I would turn around, I'd see a C, maybe a thousand white handkerchiefs, and I'd say, okay, that's going to be a hit. And uh, in this one, we all lived with white handkerchiefs in our mouths <laughs> with, with, with this scene. It was just, it was amazing. So is it your favorite scene because it's hilarious on the page and on the screen or because of that moment off screen, do you think? Uh, it's a combination because, first of all, it has nothing to do with the problem of creating a living human being from inanimate pieces taken <laughs> yeah. from the graveyard. Nothing to what yeah. what is what is get out of the bathroom, give someone else a chance, have anything to do <laughs> with what the experiment but that was going on yeah. in Frankenstein's castle. It's absurd. It's so yeah, it's good. absurd. Yes. That's why I love I love everything that's absurd. So Mel, this like so many other of your films is a parody. Um, you know, with your T V series Get Smart, you parodied the spy genre, Blazing Saddles the Western, Young Frankenstein the horror film. What attracted you to parody? You know, the frames of reference. What would, the kids would understand what, it, what I was doing. Hmm. Once, once they'd seen the picture, especially Spaceballs, once they saw the picture... The, the picture you're satirizing. They knew what, I was, what the takeoff was, what the satire was. Yeah. So it made, it made things a lot easier than creating... Let's say I did a movie later on called Life Stinks, <laughs> and there were no frames of reference. It was just, if you were very poor... And you lived in urine-filled alleys somewhere in, in, a, in a bad neighborhood. You'd understand what the movie was about. But I wanted to say something about 
I don't know about the inequity of of of, of life, especially yeah. in big cities. So, so and it's more difficult, and they won't be as successful as Spaceballs or any of the parodies. And you know, Blazing Saddles was easy. It just I had seen eleven hundred westerns sure. as a child. Yeah. So it was just I knew every cliche, you know, from yeah. sitting around a campfire eating beans. To to a to a brawl in a, in a western bar. And, so you know. basically, it was just easier for you. It was easier. It was more fun. It was more fun, <laughs> yeah. actually. Nothing is easy. I, I, you actually bring up a good point. You know, for a lot of people of my generation, some of the earliest comedy that captured our imaginations you created. You know, you you mentioned making these parodies that kids could understand. But I still find this stuff funny as an adult, and I and I still think kids today react to your work, Spaceballs especially. I know my friends' children love that movie. What is the secret of appealing to all ages? Just having that frame of reference. What do you, you think? You know, it is? you got to make the kids laugh. Kids are not in not into irony. They're not into satire, but adults yeah. are. So it's got to be satiric and ironic for adults, and it's got to be simple and silly and funny and fun for yeah. for young people. It's a very thin and tough line to walk, but I'm yeah. a bit of a genius. <laughs> there you go. So I, I'm, yeah. I was able to walk it. You're yeah. a tightrope walker. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of your genius, you not only think you're a genius, but uh, let's take 1974, the year Young Frankenstein came out. Blazing Saddles came out. It was the second highest grossing film of the year. Young Frankenstein was the third highest grossing film of that year. Uh, what do you remember about that period of your life? Because it must have been a bonkers year in the Brooks household. Well, I mean, we bought a car. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> you know, we just bought it outright. Not we didn't oh. have to make down payments. I mean, we got over $10,000 wow. coming in from both movies. No plastic on the so, seats or anything. No, no. So, yeah. No, actually, uh, no one goes into this business for money. Maybe uh, people who invest in studios, you know, sure, stock sure. and stuff. Yeah. Maybe they go. The money I mean, men. The, the people who entertain, the people who write, the people who who make jokes, they're in it for applause, for laughter, for love. And mm. and they, they don't give a damn how much how much money there is in it. They, yeah. Their agents care. Managers care. <laughs> And, you know, and, and some, you know, some girl living in, in Cincinnati on the side, their wife doesn't know about, she cares. <laughs> but generally, the people give their heart, they give their soul, they give their, their everything because they have to and they love it. Yeah. And, and the joy yeah. they get is the audience cracking up, going wild, applauding, laughing. But in 1974, aren't you getting more of that reaction than you'd ever got before, you know? Yeah, I couldn't believe it, you know. When I did the producers, that was back. It opened in 1968. I would go into the Fine Arts Theater and uh, count the house yeah. just to see how many people had come in to see it that night. Wow. It didn't do badly, but it was just thrilling to see people online who couldn't get in to see Young Frankenstein yeah. or to see Blazing Saddles. There were some ugly things going on in the world when you were coming up in Hollywood, the Vietnam War, et cetera. There still are. Oh, yeah. How do you keep your sense of humor in the face of... I, yeah, I think, I think one sense of humor is not acquired. I think it's genetic. I think it's a gift. I mm. think when I was a, I was a, the, I was a little kid, uh, the uh, fourth boy of four boys, and my mother was... Uh, I don't know. She was just joie de vivre. She loved life. I had a great mother, and she she mm. infused me with with kind of a joy and happiness. Always whistling, always singing. I remember 
uh, when I was a little kid, I was only four or five years old, going to going to school. It was winter. My 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 mother was a saint. She would put my my little clothes on the radiator. She dressed me under the covers so that I'd be warm when I popped out of bed. Oh and she was and she had Bing Crosby at some fifteen minute radio show every morning. Oh, Brown. Sweet George. How could you not be happy? That sounds delightful. So she was really, she was a, I don't know how she, she survived without, without her husband, without, without her man for, for all those years, never remarried and raised her kids. And, and so I think she was the, the heart and soul of, of, of my joy, you know, and, and, and then I was lucky enough to be married for 45 years to Anne Bancroft, oh, yeah. who was the same kind of person. I mean, yeah. you know, something that, some crazy, fast, fat swaller, weird song would come on the radio and Anne would break into a dance. Uh-huh. I mean, <laughs> just like my mother. It was just, it was, you know, I, I had two of the greatest women in, in the world. So I, I have... That's the reason for my joie de vivre, my joy. Did she uh, also dress you in bed, Mel? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also, oh, she that's did. Great. She did, and 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 undressed me. <laughs> the great Mel Brooks, the musical adaptation of Young Frankenstein, is playing now in London's West End, and shortly after we taped that interview, Mel put his handprints in the cement in front of the Chinese theater in Hollywood. And for all we know, he might still be there stuck in the ground. So if you see him, please give him some water and our sympathies. Yes, but meanwhile, stick around because in a few minutes, we'll hear Mel answer listeners' etiquette questions. You're listening to the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. No gal maid has got a shade on Sweet Georgia Brown Two left feet, but oh so neat So we've sipped cocktails, met our guest of honor, but it's still not quite a dinner party till there's music playing. Yes, and here with suggestions is A.C. Newman. In addition to a robust solo career, he's the mastermind behind Canadian supergroup The New Pornographers, so he knows a thing or two about keeping a crowd happy. We figured he's just the guy to spin us a party playlist. Hi, this is A.C. Newman from The New Pornographers. We just put out a record called Brill Bruisers a few days ago, last month. Who can say... And this is my dinner party soundtrack. The first song I wanted to play at my dinner party was called With Us Soon by uh, Doug Tuttle. It's a record that came out early this year. Doug Tuttle used to be in a band called Moss with two M's. M-M-O-S-S. It's sort of mellow. Nice entry music. I'd say it's got a very classic, like, late 60s birds feel to it. Without being decidedly retro. Like, when it's nothing but the retro stylings and no song, that really bugs me. But when... When somebody knows how to sound like birds circa 1969 and they can knock it out of the park, I love that stuff. It's a strangely obscure record. Like, it's one of those records I listen to and I think, why is this not hugely popular? You know, sometimes you want to convince your friends of new music and they won't listen to you if you have them captive at a dinner party and you put on this record, then I think, I think it could reach them.
The second song I would play at my dinner party would be You Better You Bet by The Who. You Better You Bet is my favorite Who song. I'm not saying it is the best Who song. It came out when I was a kid. It was on the radio, so I tie You Better You Bet into a time when I was like eight years old, where like music on the radio sounds magical to you. The lyrics are verging on terrible, but Pete Townsend, guitar player, head songwriter, was so confident in what he does that he didn't second-guess himself, and that's what makes the lyrics so great, and that he puts a line in there like, you know, I've been wearing crazy clothes and I look pretty crappy sometimes. If I wrote that, I would put a line through it and go, no, no, you're not putting that in the song. But he put that in the song, and Roger Daltrey just yelled it with everything he had, and it's brilliant. I guess I would play this at my dinner party because there's a part of me that just wants to annoy my dinner party guests with this conversation, which is not a conversation, it's a monologue actually, where my dinner guests would stare blankly at me while I uh, pontificate on the genius of Townsend's lyrics in uh, You Better You Bet. I think there would be a few people like saying, excuse me, our babysitter just texted me. I think we have to go. The last song I would play at my dinner party would be What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers. Just because, hey, everybody loves What a Fool Believes by the Doobie Brothers. It's got that dun 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 which, if it wasn't the first song to do that, it was the first to really nail it. Because I know Robbie Dupree's Steal Away. Why don't we steal away? Dun 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 dun. I don't know which one came first, but they're, they're definitely of a similar school. He came from somewhere back in her long ago. A friend of mine did What a Fool Believes at karaoke very badly, and I realized, wow, these lyrics are very asymmetrical. It's a long run-on sentence. Once There's no real simple, like, lyrical hook to remember, except for the line, What a Fool Believes. But it's a song that just lodged into my head. It just reminds me of, like, collecting baseball cards. And, you know, I think at some point in my life, maybe I thought I was too cool for school and that I didn't like music that sounded like Michael McDonald. And then you come back to it and realize, no, this guy has got the most killer voice. If I was going to play one of our songs at my party, although it's something I would never do, I would pick Brill Bruisers. A straight down the middle rock song. It's not as interesting as uh, You Better You Bet. It's actually got closer ties to We Will Rock You, actually. In fact, when we first started working on it, I think its working title was Rock You because at the heart of it, it's got this pulse very similar. It's got this boom, boom, tang, boom, boom, tang. Right, right, 
party soundtrack from A.C. Newman. This is the title tune off Brill Bruisers from his band New Pornographers. Their latest album is called Whiteout Conditions. All right, coming up, we find out what happens when you mix cats with cappuccino. Fun. Besides alliteration. And Mel Brooks returns to offer etiquette tips, whether he knows it or not. Etiquette? This is an etiquette segment? This is what we've been doing? That and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from Mary Timoney and her new band X Hex. And coming up, we virtually visit a cat cafe. I keep saying that. That's different than a cat house, right? It's, it's way different. It's right. legal. Okay. <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> okay, great. But is it right? I mean, having cats in cafe. We'll hear uh, about I guess it. we're going to find out. But yeah. first... It's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them is once again Mel Brooks. We spoke to him earlier in the show about the 40th anniversary of his classic film Young Frankenstein, which will be reissued on Blu-ray this week. And Mel, we figure the guy who wrote the gaseous bean-eating scene in Blazing Saddles would be just the perfect person to adjudicate matters of etiquette. Seemed like a natural fit. You ready for these questions? Ready for your submission. Okay. This first question comes from Saba in Encino, California. Saba writes, if I make a joke that offends someone, what's the best way to go about apologizing without making it even more awkward? Mm. If you make a joke that offends someone... The best way to go about is to get into your little yellow Volkswagen, slam the door, and drive away. <laughs> that, that's the best thing. Now, right. if you, you make a joke that offends somebody, what I say is, please forgive me. I, you know, sometimes I say, I'm from Brooklyn. I don't know. You know. <laughs> what can I do? Yeah. Blame it on your upbringing. You're right. Blame it on your upbringing. <laughs> okay, that's good. Okay. If you're not from Brooklyn, just say you're from Brooklyn. Right. That's right. She's from Encino. Encino is kind of like Brooklyn, isn't Encino it? Encino is the furthest thing ever created from Brooklyn, but I don't want to go into that. So just lie, Saba, right. in Encino. Okay. Here's something from Alexis. She wrote us via Facebook. We're not sure where she's from. Alexis writes, what is the biggest faux pas in history according to the 2,000-year-old man? Now, for those who don't know, this, of course, was your character who was supposedly 2,000 years old and would be questioned by your sidekick, Carl Reiner. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would say the biggest faux pas in history, according to the 2,000-year-old man, would be... To say gesundheit when somebody farts <laughs> instead of burps. I mean, you know, that would really be a faux pas. <laughs> that would be. That would be awkward. It would really be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Is that a yeah. faux pas or just some sort of... No, you know, it, that would be just, just a, a, you know, a tiny stupidity. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go, Alexis. Yeah, the worst thing that's happened in 2,000 years. <laughs> yeah. Our next question comes from Gail in Pasadena, California. Gail writes, if you have season tickets to four concerts... And at the first one, the people behind you are obnoxious, crackling rappers and whispering constantly. What's the best way to shut them up without creating enemies behind you at concerts two, three, and four? That's that's really difficult. It's really not in my domain to mm. figure those things out. But, I, you know, <laughs> in the old days, we would just take an old-fashioned bottle of seltzer <laughs> and just spray them. <laughs> spray them with bubbly water until... Yeah. It sounds like that might create the enemies that you're trying to avoid creating. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it concerts two, three, and four, just write, if you make noise during the concert, we will kill you. <laughs> write it on a card and have it 
on your back. Yeah. So maybe maybe it'll get to that. All right. Although actually, it, it occurs to me that if Mel Brooks squirted me with a seltzer bottle, that would make me delighted. That's... Exactly. I would come back to the concert excited every time. <laughs> yeah. I hope it happens again. <laughs> yeah. It could be. I like that. All right. Rico from Los Angeles. Yes. You know? Do you know Little Caesar, the movie with Edward G. Robinson? Yes. Do you know the movie well? And not very well. Probably not as well as Mel Brooks. Yeah. Well, do you know what happens when Rico is riddled with machine gun bullets and is dying? Oh yeah. What is the line? No, there is a line. Yeah, what is it? Mother of God, could this be the end of Rico? Uh, that is that's Edward G. Robinson's line. That's going to be on my gravestone. <laughs> yeah. It will be the end. It'll yeah, be Mother of I, God, that is the end of Rico. Uh, so here's a question from Opus in New York City. Right. Tell Opus that there is a fabulous wine that the Rothschilds make. That's right. In the Napa Valley called Opus One. Oh, my. Yeah. That is really, it's a little too expensive, but it's really an incredible wine. Well, we'll see if Opus serves that from now on at his home. Okay. But he writes, how does one best react if one accidentally breaks wind loudly at one's dinner party and one's fellow guests are slightly more fussy than those in the campfire scene from Blazing Saddles? Oh, that's a good question. A lot of people asked a version of this question. That's what you're thought of. Yeah. When they think of Mel Brooks. I think you should you should do what I do sometimes. Turn to somebody near you and say, What's the matter with you? <laughs> Can't you see we're all there's a bunch of people here? <laughs> you uncivilized heathen. Just really turn the tables very quickly. Blame it on somebody nearby. Offload the guilt. Right. Immediately. Like what is your problem? We're here enjoying nice opus wine. Are you from Brooklyn or something? Is yeah, that right. That's yeah. good. I like that. What's the matter with you? Are you from Brooklyn? <laughs> I like yeah. that. Okay. All right. So our next question comes from Gabriel in Beacon, Iowa. And Gabriel writes Wait a minute. Beacon, Iowa? Yes. Yeah. Is this a surprise to you that such a place exists? Yeah, there is a bit of a surprise. I don't think there is a Beacon, Iowa. I, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I think Gabriel made that up. I think Gabriel's probably from Brooklyn. And he heard all the fun we're making of Brooklyn. He switched, oh, yeah. He, he switched quick, his hometown quickly. Quick citroo to Beacon. Sounds like a Brooklynite to me. Yeah. Well, wherever the heck Gabriel's from, he's a liar, so we can barely trust his question. But I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay. Gabriel writes... While riding in my friend's car on an empty highway, he stays in the left passing lane no matter what. When cars approach from behind, he won't move over, and he complains they're tailgating. His rationalization is he's going the speed limit, and other cars shouldn't be allowed to pass because that means they're speeding. (laughs) How do I go about not losing my mind and get him to move over? As a side note, he doesn't like receiving driving advice. (laughs) One of these guys, left lane slow drivers, sitters. Person like that, you got to keep out of the car. I think what you got to do is, when you're having dinner with his friend, put something in his wine or water. <laughs> Keep him sleeping. Keep him out of the car. <laughs> just just knock him out. Keep him sleeping. So Rufy Gabriel is what you're saying. Yeah. Is the right. answer. Slip him some lewds. You got I don't know. <laughs> That's the polite thing to do. <laughs> right. Remove him from the car. Okay. There you go. Um, here's our last question, Mel. And it's a question we ask everyone in our etiquette segment. Etiquette? This is an etiquette segment? Yeah, is believe it or not. You're doing? <laughs> not really anymore. There's, there hasn't been a it shred was. of etiquette in anything you've asked and anything I've replied. Here's your last yeah. chance to redeem this segment. Okay. The question, and we ask this to all our etiquette guests, what's the most memorable get-together you've ever been to? Who, what, and where? Details, please. Uh, well, I, there was a fabulous uh, get-together last Friday in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, at PS19, for the celebration of all all the kids who who went to PS19 uh, graduation in 1931. Wow, it was a reunion. It was a great reunion. I was all alone. <laughs> <laughs> there 
was not a single person in that reunion but me. And I, I put on a party hat, and I drank orange soda, and I just, I had a cupcake. Oh, wow. sounds like a good time. A candle. I mean, it was just, it was fabulous. Well, you were in great company. Mel Brooks, thank you so much for coming by, chatting with us, telling our audience how to behave, and making these wonderful films. Thank, thank you, guys. This has been a pleasure, really. We rode a blazing saddle. We wore a shining star. His job to offer battle to bad men near and far. Comedian Mel Brooks, one of the few people to ever win an Oscar, an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony. Man, I think when that happens, they melt all of your statues down (laughs) and just give you a big square block of gold. A blocky, I think it's called. And people, if you need perhaps saner etiquette tips, you might want to buy our forthcoming book. It's called Brunch is Hell, How to Save the World by Throwing a Dinner Party. It is full of standards of behavior we think everyone ought to follow to make parties excellenter. Plus grammar tips. Mm. You can pre-order it now wherever books are sold-ish. A torch to light the way. And now... It's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, as you know, I think dogs are swell, but when it comes down to it, I'm a cat person. That's right. That's how it is. Which explains why you're always asking me to dangle a shoelace in front of your face. (laughs) I I can't get enough. (laughs) You're easily distracted. But yeah, I love cats. So imagine my delight when I learned this week North America got its first cat cafe. Wow. These are coffee shops that have been popular in Asia for years, where in addition to a nice cup of joe, you also get to hang out with friendly cats. This is like a nightmare for people like me who are allergic. That is, to I'm cats. sorry for you, but lucky for you, it's way up in Montreal. You have nothing to worry about. Okay. Montreal also would account for the place's French name. It's called Café de Chat. I chatted with co-owner Nadine Spencer this week and first asked why she wanted to open the place. It's something that's bound to do well, seeing as there's many people that either come here for just for school, so for a very short period, or there's a lot of landlords that just don't allow pets in homes. I see. So, so students, obviously, they can't get a pet because they're not around full time. Exactly. Also, elderly people can't always take care of pets on their own either. So mm. we wanted to reach out to pet lovers that didn't have the option of having one of their own or that just wanted to have some company from us, some other fantastic felines. Where? Well, let's talk about these felines. Where did the cats come from? Are they, are they lent by owners? Does the shop own them and care for them after hours? No, there are little kitties. We actually adopted all of the cats from the SPCA. All right. So they all are rescue cats and we gave them a second chance. Well, obviously you can get rescue cats that have serious problems. How did you screen these cats? What are you looking for in the person? perfect cafe cat. Well, uh, they did the first choice for us. And from those that were chosen, we went and picked the ones that we really fell in love with, that we saw had a a good character, super friendly. And uh, from there, once we had chosen all eight of our cats, we do have eight, we kept them there in quarantine for about a month and a half to make sure that they were all healthy, that there was no issues. And that they were all friends with one another. Yes, I was going to say, because so. that's the other thing. I mean, ironically, the two things that I know as a cat lover is that a, a lot of cats are very shy around lots of strangers and mm-hmm. also have a hard time around lots of cats, which is exactly mm-hmm. the situation you're putting them in. Oh, no. we Everybody has just been commenting on how amazing the cats are. They're really exceptionally friendly. They love people. They love playing. 
And when they don't feel like doing so, they can just come and kind of go off and do their own thing. It is their home after all. And we do have a little, I guess you could say bedroom, cat room, that we built specially in the location. So if ever they don't feel like being social, they they can just go and kind of hang out in there. They can take a time out, basically. A time out. There you go. (laughs) Well, then is it possible that I could go to the cat cafe and there just aren't any cats because they're all just like, I've had enough for today? Um, No, they're usually pretty much lounging around throughout the cafe. They rarely go to their room. Most of the time, they're just kind of chilling throughout the cafe on their on their cat trees or their cat beds. <laughs> you know, there's never been a cafe like this in North America. What was the reaction of, say, food safety and animal safety officials when you applied for the business license? Well, it was all as new to them as it was to us, so it definitely took a little bit longer for them to come up with uh, the rules and regulations, one of them being that the kitchen cannot be in the same area as the cats. I was going to ask you about about that. Yeah, a lot, a lot of no fur in the paninis. <laughs> <laughs> fur would be the least of my worries. Well, and amongst other things. But they, they do their little business also in their bedroom. So that's uh, behind a curtain closed off from the public as well. So nobody has to smell any smelliness. What is, I mean, but what, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the cats and making sure that they don't, you know, affect the health of the humans. But what about the other way around? I mean, you can get crazy cat people. How do you screen for the humans? <laughs> there are rules that are set in place. So there's no picking up the cats unless one of the staff members hands them to you. <laughs> there's no feeding the cats, obviously no rough and tough with the kitties. And if they're sleeping, then uh, by all means, they have to be left to uh, sleep. You have to go to the cats then. You can't pick them. You, you go to wherever they are. They can come into your lap or something. Exactly. Oh, it sounds adorable. It is. It's, uh, I'm missing them being away from them right now. <laughs> but I do have to... It does make me wonder. The draw of this place, obviously, is the cats. Why even offer the cafe part of it? Couldn't you just have a vending machine in the corner and you'd have plenty of clientele? People like to eat. <laughs> but we keep our menu to very basic. We have paninis, croissants, chocolatines, pastries, but nothing extravagant on the menu. We really wanted to focus on the coffee and the kitties more so than anything else. It is it is kind of a genius move, right? I mean, if there are two things that are probably booming, thanks in part to the Internet, it's coffee mm-hmm. culture and cat culture. Exactly. So we hit them right on the nose. <laughs> My God, you're just going to be rolling in dough. I'm glad to meet you before you're a snooty millionaire. You've, you've been open a week. What surprised you so far maybe about the customers? or? or well, the... we've actually, today is only our third day of business. We had a line down the street on Saturday. Um, but, uh, you know, everybody's just really been saying how amazing they find the cats. Oh, they're very soft. So everybody's been asking, what do you do to their fur? <laughs> and uh, we feed them Royal Canine, which is uh, yeah. an amazing brand. So they definitely get the best nutrition. And I think it must definitely come from that because they are soft, as soft as can be. So you got eight cats. Is there one who's maybe the star? Um, I would definitely say they all have characters. Uh, King Kong is the eldest, the godfather. He's five and a half. He is massive, large and in charge, if you will, but probably one of the most gentlest cats I've ever met in my life. You named him King Kong. It suits him. If you go online uh, on our Facebook page, you'll see pictures and uh, you'll, you'll know what I mean when you take a look. Um, we have Bigfoot, who is a polydactyl. Oh, that means uh, they have is, thumbs, kind of, right? Yeah, little mitten thumbs. And uh, I think he's the one in charge right now. He's kind of taken uh, control of things, watching over all of the, the cats and uh, keeping them in order. Because he's, you know, obviously he's evolutionarily, exactly. he could actually grow to be able to use tools. Yeah, so. exactly. We had That's to scary. actually, um, the door, instead of turning the doorknob down, we put it to turn up to avoid any kitty escapes. <laughs> 
and he was one of the ones that we were worried about. <laughs> sure, you could have a Dawn of the Planet of the Apes uprising going. Yeah, exactly. We'll have an extra thumb and all, you never know. Nadine Spencer, co-owner of Montreal's Café des Chats, and Brendan, several years back, you know, I went to a cat cafe while visiting Tokyo. This is a big surprise. Yeah, basically that and temples were the only thing on my list. Mm. Anyway, our Instagram feed has some photos I shot at that cafe, and they are so cute, they're going to break the internet. Our handle is Dinner Party DNLD. And that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download, everybody. Next week, just in time for Thanksgiving, tune in for our annual all-food episode featuring our favorite conversations with chefs like Gabrielle Hamilton and the sound of me inhaling a nose full of horseradish. Oh, it's so painful. Our senior producer is Jackson Musker. Krista Ripple is our associate producer. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Our intern is Emerald Douglas, and Kristen Kuhn's assistant produced this episode. Ben Talladay engineered. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Mary Timoney, a force behind the bands Helium and Wild Flag, is also part of the rock group X-Hex. From their debut album entitled Rips, here's a track called Don't Wanna Lose. Bon appétit. For attending the dinner party download, I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, a tasty mouse. Rico, no. no.